This New America NYC event took place September 27, 2016, and is titled The Populist Explosion, How the Great Recession Transformed American and European Politics, and features John B. Judas, Editor-at-Large, Talking Points Memo, and Michael Lind, Co-Founder and Policy Director, Economic Growth Program, New America. Well, so John, to start off with the question that I always dread as an author is, what were you thinking when you wrote this book? Because depending on how, where you place the emphasis in the sentence, it could be, what were you thinking when, when you uh, wrote this book? But tell us about the genesis of the populist explosion. I, I'm gonna talk about you first. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, they, there, I think there was somebody else was supposed to be here questioning me, and then they got, I saw it's Mike Lynn, they said, is this really supposed to be a debate? <laughs> I met Mike, do you remember this? At a, it was a, a cocktail party that the New Republic had in 1992. That's why I don't remember. In the spring. <laughs> and um, Mike was, I think you were an editor of National Interest or mm -hmm. something. And uh, we discovered that we had a common interest in Ross Perot. That was the beginning. And then three years later, we wrote this uh, piece called, what, what was it, like the New Nationalism? Yeah, 1995. Yeah. Yes. So this subject itself goes back to our history as well as to, to my history. Um, I, I uh, signed up with Columbia Global Reports to do this book, oh, about, oh, I, I guess it was uh, uh, about, 19, 18, 19 months ago, it was like in May or June of 2015. And at the time, what I had in mind was a kind of um, a, a, a paradox that I had been dealing with, which was that in the United States, there was really only a, a prominence to a right-wing populism, the Tea Party. And that was partly because of the kind of prosperity we'd had. And that in Europe, there were both kinds. There was right and left. But I didn't know that much about Europe. I, so that was kind of the, the mentality that I came to, to the story with, to the, to, to the book. Um, my wife and I go to New Hampshire every summer for uh, 10 days. And uh, in August of 2015, um, I, I did a kind of bus man's holiday. I, was, uh, we went around, I dragged her around with me to watch candidates. And uh, one of the candidates was Donald Trump. And uh, he was speaking at a high school in New Hampton. I think it was um, in New Hampton, uh, uh, New Hampshire. And um, when we arrived there, it was like uh, the Rolling Stones had announced a free concert. Or pick your, you know, pick whoever you want from uh, Bruce Springsteen. There was a line that stretched out all the way around the high school. It was like 300 yards of people. Uh, and then we got in. And this, again, the New Hampshire crowd wasn't your classic, what was become sort of the classic uh, Trump crowd, because it's, uh, they were more people who were uh, as much curious as anything else. And uh, Trump did a little of what you hear him do now, but what amazed me was here was this Republican who was going after the Ford Motor Company for shutting down its businesses, its factories in the United States and moving to Mexico. And he was saying, well, if they did that, 
What I'd like to do, what I'd tell the guy who was the head of Ford that that was fine, but he'd have to pay a 35% tariff on the goods coming back. Now, that is the kind of complaint about runaway shops that I had not heard since the days of Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot. There's a few Democrats, Sherrod Brown, you might hear it from, but not a presidential candidate, and this was a damn Republican. Uh, and there were other things. At that time, he, was, he talked about inversions, you know, where the, where the corporations moved to the Cayman Islands or the Bahamas or somewhere to avoid taxes. It was a very populist presentation. Uh, it was sort of what you got from the first 20 or 15 minutes of the debate last night. And I was amazed. And I became more amazed as it went on when this guy actually got this uh, support uh, within the uh, Republican Party. And of course, he ends up winning the nomination. Sanders, you know, when I, again, when I th th started this book, he had just announced, and he was like, you know, at 4% in the polls, he was like fighting it out with uh, uh, Martin O'Malley and maybe Jim Webb had been announced then. And all of a sudden, he took off. And it, again, it wasn't, it, it, it was young people. Uh, it would mostly had gone to college or were in college, uh, but it wasn't simply a matter, I mean, they were enraged by the recession and what had happened and the rigged economy and the billionaire class. And again, it was a kind of appeal that was different from liberalism. Liberalism, normally you try to bring every groups together. You try to find compromises. It wasn't uh, as you know, Sanders got, uh, was a socialist and says he still is, but he wasn't uniting the working class. He was uniting the people against the billionaire class. So again, as with Trump, it was this incredible populist appeal, and it was winning all the support uh, in the Democratic Party. So again, I had these two things. I, then I went to Europe in um, the, the winter, and I think what I discovered there that surprised me was that the, the right wing, so-called right wing, and there sometimes I just read an article where they're described as far right populist parties. If you look at some of their uh, domestic uh, agenda, it's to the left of Bernie Sanders. I, uh, I, I was gonna, I'll just, I won't go through this any for a long time. I just wanna read you this, because it, it, again, it'll, it'll give you a sense of how surprised I was and how different the, the, the movement itself is from what it, way it's portrayed. Here's the French, uh, the National Front's platform. Um, they want a strategic plan for reindustrialization, tariffs and quotas to protect against unfair competition, the separation of commercial from investment banking, Glass-Steagall, right? A transaction tax on stock purchases, the nationalization of banks facing difficulties, a cap on credit card char charges, opposition to cuts in social spending and the privatization of public services, equal quality healthcare access regardless of income lo or location and rejection of the European Union's attempts to impose austerity. So something again is very odd and it can't be explained just simply in, in terms of the traditional categories of left or right or Christian Democrat or social Democrat. Um, and that's again, that's, the, that's what I started out with and the que question I 
posed myself was, why is this happening? And what is it going to mean for the future of politics in Europe and the United States? So the book's title is The Populist Explosion, not The Fascist Explosion. Uh, but we have people from the center right to the center left trying to equate this populism, whether it's left populism or right populism, with Hitler and Mussolini and you know, Weimar Germany and all of that. So, so tell us why this is not, in your view, a resurgence of interwar fascism. Um, well, nobody really, I mean, Bernie Sanders didn't get called a fascist, but there are left populists uh, like uh, Griot in Italy who have been called that, but it's mostly the so-called right populists and Trump here. Uh, and it is a kind of uh, application of, you know, what Godwin's law, any argument about something at a certain point, they're going to bring up Hitler. Um, it is partly a kind of function of that kind of thinking. There are, of course, similarities between um, Trump or the National Front or the, the Danes and fascists in the sense that there's a scapegoating of particular outgroups. So that's common to that, but that's also common to a lot of right-wing groups, and it's uh, even common to some in the center and the left. What, what differentiates what's happening now in Western Europe and in the United States from 1920s and 1930s, well, I'd say there's two things. The first thing is that the main two fascist movements in Europe in the 1920s, the Nazis, the fascists in Italy, were both expansionist, imperialist. Uh, Mussolini wanted to recreate the old Roman Empire. Hitler wanted the Third Reich. The movements now that are populist are nationalist, and they are, I don't even know if this is a word, contractionary. They want to actually uh, reduce the scope of, of uh, international organizations. Um, the, na the, the right wing populist organizations in Europe are anti-European Union. Trump, if Trump were a classic fascist, fascist he wouldn't be talking about uh, wasting trillions of dollars in the Middle East and, and that should be spent here. He'd be talking about, well, if we'd done it right, we would control the whole Middle East and the rest of the world. It's a much different kind of movement. It's, uh, now is it now centripetal or centrifugal? Centrifugal goes, they were the, the 20s and 30s fascist centrifugal. The movements today are centripetal. They're moving back. They're not, a, they're not for the United States taking over Mexico, but keeping out Mexicans, in other words. So uh, the, the second thing is that the, the original fascist movements, and this again, this applies to Spain as, as well, uh, were poised against the Russian Revolution and the threat of communism and of a worldwide international uh, communist movement. And their primary purpose was to knock them out, and if necessary, to do so by destroying democracy itself. They were not uh, themselves bourgeois movements. They, and uh, there is a little of that now still in Eastern Europe, because Eastern Europe, after all, uh, still has the legacy of Soviet communism. And that's one of the reasons why, I mean, I didn't fool with Eastern Europe because some of those governments are really different from the 
call the populist movements in Western Europe. The populist movements in Western Europe, the United States, are within the framework still of democracy. I mean, you heard Trump last night say that he was gonna support whoever won the presidency. Uh, and he will, believe me, he will, if Clinton wins the presidency. Uh, and in Europe, there's succession within the parties. There isn't the same kind of, there isn't the, the il duce kind of phenomenon. Uh, they're, to a great extent, ordinary political parties, but they have a very special kind of political agenda that marks them off from the center right and the center left. So again, it, it, you know, if you, want to, if you want to knock those groups by calling them fascists, that's all right, because there are certain similarities. But if you're trying to understand the history, it doesn't get at it. It's a mistake. Well, speaking of Western Europe, uh, you write in the book that there's a difference between the populists in Southern Europe and in, in Northern Europe, or Northern and Central Europe, uh, with the Southern populists being more on the left and the Northerners being more right. on the right. To the extent these terms, as you pointed out, these are dubious terms in many ways. Well, let, let me talk a little about the, what populism is and then, then and what the difference is between left-wing and right-wing, and then, then we'll go yeah. to Europe. Um, they, they're all, you know, uh, just like there's a hundred different varieties of liberalism. You couldn't tell me what the essence of liberalism is between the, you know, Australian Liberal Party and the New Deal liberal here. The same thing's true of populists. I mean, Putin, I, you can look on, you can do a Google and Putin has been called a populist. Uh, Ronald Reagan was called a populist. But what I was talking about and describing in the book is a tradition that begins really in the United States in the 1890s. And that's where the word itself comes from, populist. And the Germans and the French use a ver variation, populist, uh, of that original term. Um, and the, the, the central characteristic of populism in that sense is the creation of a kind of demarcation between the people and the elite, the people and the establishment. The difference between left-wing and right-wing populism is for the left, the arrow only points upwards. In other words, it's the people against, it's the 99% against the 1% occupy a Wall Street. It's the people against the billionaire class. For the right, there also is this kind of antagonism. Uh, the Tea Party people um, are not, we're never happy about Wall Street. Um, and certainly, again, with Trump, you find Ford Motor uh, or Nabisco, all these companies attacked uh, for the runaway shops. But in addition to that, there's a third term, and that is Muslims, African Americans, um, immigrants. So, you know, it's the difference between Huey Long was a populist on the left in America, George Wallace was a populist on the right. Perot, I believe, was on the left, Pat Buchanan more on the right. So the right-wing populism has these three terms, uh, and, and left-wing just two. In Europe, um, it's, we have this odd kind of phenomenon where populism arises on the left in the southern part of Europe, Greece, Italy, uh, to some extent Portugal, and certainly Spain, where there's a group called Podemos, the Syriza in Greece, the five-star movement in, in Italy. These are countries that were most decimated by the Great Recession 
and by the rules imposed by the European Union, which didn't allow them to get out of the recession by the ordinary means of a devaluation, but instead they, had to they have had basically to starve their citizenry in order to reduce the demand for imports and to improve their trade balance. So in these countries, what you find is outrage primarily directed at Brussels and at the politicians, including the socialists, for instance, in uh, both in, in, uh, in Spain, who went along with the program of austerity of the European Union. Now in the north, and leave out France, which is a kind of funny hybrid, uh, in, in countries, let's say the Netherlands, Denmark, Germany, uh, some, some of the um, Finland, Sweden, uh, Norway, they're, they're, they were not as hit as nearly as hard by the Great Recession. And so, some of them, I think, um, when I used to do uh, book talks with my friend Rui Teixeira about politics, he was a numbers guy. So I could always turn to him and say, Rui, what were the exact numbers of the, and I don't, but unemployment in Denmark was like 6% at the high, or something like that at the high. It, it, nothing like, nothing comparable to the South. In those countries, the, the brunt of populism was, on the one hand, against immigrants and asylum seekers. They thought were imposing costs, social costs, upon their population. And on the other hand, against Greece, Spain, and all these other countries, which they thought were freeloading, and they, were, they objected to the idea that they would have to subsidize them through the European Union. So you had completely different kind of opposed politics on the right and on the and and, uh, and and on the left between the north and the south. France is sort of a hybrid. Uh, the United States, of course, is a hybrid. Uh, we have uh, we have the right wing politics of Trump centered in a. Uh, the, our own version of what Britons call the left behinds, so the, of the working class. Um, so uh, while at the same time we have, I mean, there's a, if you look at the Podemos, I, I went and visited, I went to a convention of, uh, that Podemos was having in Madrid, and it reminded me of what it would have been like if SDS hadn't fallen apart in 1969 and you know, people had still been around, and it was a big movement in 1975. So they were 30 years old, the average. But it was that group. It was it was it was basically older kids. They'd go a lot of. Uh, I mean, I think most of them had gone to college. A lot were unemployed because the unemployment among youth is 45 percent. But it was very similar to the Sanders crowd. Very similar. It was a youth movement. So again, you have these two very different kinds of populism. Uh, springing up both in the United States and Europe. Well, how much do you think this is a response to the Great Recession recently? And how much do you think it's a response to the shift in the social base of center-left parties in particular, like the Democrats in the U.S., labor, socialists in France, from the native white working classes of these countries to uh, uh, in the unions, uh, private sector unions, to uh, uh, more metropolitan, professional, college-educated elites, Boy. because there, these trends were there back to, you know, for some time, right? Right. Um, 
Let, let's, start, let's start way back in the 70s, prehistoric times, right? Um, I, I, With the, this audience. Uh, <laughs> no, not some of them. <laughs> um, what, what happens in the 70s and 80s in the United States and uh, in, Europe, in Northern Europe is a shift away from, in, in the United States, you call it, you'd say, New Deal liberalism. In, in Europe, it was more social democracy. Even when the Christian Democrats were in charge, that was the, the, the kind of reigning worldview. Uh, towards a different kind of economics that was the response to um, the change in global capitalism, the rise of all these new capitalist countries, uh, the fact that there was now excess capacity in, in steel, textile ships, all these big manufacturing industries that had been the heart of these countries. Uh, there wasn't enough demand for the total amount of goods that could be produced. Uh, labor unions had become extremely strong in the United States as well as, in, of course, in, in, in Europe. So there was wage pressures. And the response to this was the creation of a much different kind of agenda that in Europe they call it neoliberalism. I, here, I, you know, maybe market liberalism is a better term for it. And the two key aspects of it, it's sort of like if you do a, um, I was thinking of this, it, it's one of those things where if you take, accept these two premises, then everything else follows. The first is a free movement of capital. Free movement of capital, both in terms of liquid money, banking, everything like that, and that, again, follow what you get with that is deregulation of finance and free movement of industry. So corporations are free to pick up wherever they want and to seek wherever their lowest costs are. So that's, uh, that's, one, that's one part of the equation. The second part is, is free movement of labor. Uh, in Europe, open borders. Uh, in the United States, a tremendous increase in, in, in uh, immigration that starts in 1965. Then you have the 1990 Immigration Act, which raises the uh, quotas to, what, about 700,000 a year. Um, and the result of this is to make it very, very difficult, if you think about this. First of all, you have, on the one hand, you have runaway shops, which makes it almost uh, impossible for unions to organize because you have this constant threat hanging over them. Uh, and in, indeed, the companies do move. And uh, sec the second thing you have is you have an explosion of immigration, which is putting tremendous pressure on lowest wage workers. Uh, town, towns, industries are transformed. Meatpacking used to be a uh, middle-class, unionized uh, occupation. Now it's a, a minimum wage. Textile workers, construction labor used to be of a much different character. So you, ha you have these pressures happening, which create uh, a, a, a much different looking kind of society. Uh, in the United States, you get this kind of, uh, people talk about the 1%, but, um, you know, it's probably more accurate. Uh, the, the, what's that guy's name? Peter Temin talks about the dual economy, 30% versus 70%. And that's sort of the Steve Rose view of it, too. That, there's a, that there, you get this kind of bifurcation between a professional elite at the top, white collar, uh, 
managerial, professional, and uh, everybody else who is, uh, happens not to have, uh, necessarily have college degrees, though now, if, even if you have a college degree from uh, a college that's not doesn't have a great reputation, you can end up as a manager at Walmart or something, something like that, or a manager at a supermarket. Um, I went to my eye doctors, which is a big place. It's got um, you know 16 eye doctors or something, and I, I talked to the office manager there. I was doing a story about computerization or something, and I and they had like 40 employees, and I said, uh, how many of them have graduated from college? And it turned out all of them had, and that included receptionists, uh, the people, the bookkeepers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. You get this kind, and they were, believe me, they were not making 100,000 a year. You get this kind of bifurcation of the, of the uh, societies, and that's, again, that happens in Europe as well. And you get the phenomenon of the left behinds, the people in the middle who suddenly find themselves cast into the bottom. They become uh, the troops of, uh, particularly of right-wing right capitalism, and their grievance ultimately is against um, neoliberalism, market liberalism. It, takes, it, takes, it can take very nasty forms, obviously. I mean, you know, Trump with his Mexican rapists and the, the uh, trying to disqualify the, the judge because he his, uh, had Mexican ancestry and all that stuff. There's no question about the, you know, about, the, uh, about those aspects of it, barring Muslims, but there is a, that there's a material core to it that comes out of the transformation of the global economy in the 70s and 80s that's propelling upwards this kind of uh, right-wing populism. And as well, in the United States and Southern Europe, left-wing. So that's a, I'm sorry, that's a long-winded answer. Well, but I'm just going to push back on this left and right-wing stuff because okay. if most of the so-called right-wing populists are former Social Democrats, former uh -huh. labor voters, former Franklin Roosevelt, right. Kennedy Johnson Democrats, and the only thing which makes them right-wing is they're opposed to present levels right. or higher levels of immigration. But on every other thing, they look like left-wing social democrats in Sweden. Then making immigration the sole litmus test is just bizarre to me because, you know, when I met you in the 90s, ages ago, the labor movement wanted to restrict immigration, right. as unions historically have done. And the only people supporting higher immigration and, and uh, open borders were Bob Bartley at the Wall Street Journal, the Libertarians, the Cato Institute, and so on. And you saw this where Ezra Klein at Vox interviewed Bernie Sanders and says, why don't we op open the borders? And Sanders says, that's a crazy right-wing Koch brothers idea, which historically is the labor left attitude, right? right? So I, I guess where I push back on your distinction between like the bad, bigoted, right-wing populism and the good anti-1% uh, left-wing populism is historically, let's look at this country. It was the unions that led the uh, Asian uh, immigration restriction in the late 19th century, for a, both because they were against indentured servants being used against workers, and also on racial grounds, very nasty racism. It was Samuel Gompers of the American Federation of Labor who supported shutting down European immigration in the 20s, even though he was a Jewish immigrant from Britain himself. You know, so, you know, that, that's just uh, uh, right. 
something I would, I would push back on. I'm not convinced all of these so-called, you know, like, so, you know, liberal populists, if you're having real high levels of immigration affecting wages, and, or at least perceived as having that, why would, so if, particularly if the employers were supporting high immigration for their own selfish reasons, why wouldn't the working class left oppose it, right? Okay, so you're, you're, you're complicating things. You're not pushing back. <laughs> I mean, I, I say in the book, but there's no, it's very hard to discuss it without even saying left versus right. right, but, right. but it's absolutely true that it's, it becomes very confusing. In Denmark, um, the, the, uh, the People's Party there came in second in the uh, last elections. Um, the socialists actually came in first, even though they, their vote dropped and they were, they were in power. And the liberal party, liberal in the uh, European sense, not in the American, more free market party, came in third. In order to uh, form a majority, there had to be a coalition. So the, uh, the, the People's Party didn't want to ally themselves with the socialists because they disagreed about what to do with the asylum seekers. The, the People's Party didn't want them to stay at all. The, soci the so social democrats want, said that they had to be um, assimilated some way, that they had to go through a period, and if they went through this training and whatever and could work and, and learn the language, then they could stay. That was the disagreement. But the People's Party refused to be part of the actual ruling coalition with the liberals, who agreed with them more on immigration, because the liberals wanted to reduce taxes on the rich. So it's, <laughs> I, I, I'm just confirming. No, it's very confused. Yeah. I saw an article, another was a Vox article, where a guy described the uh, Finns party in Finland as a far-right populist party. Now, in fact, you know, in Finland, they have one of these deals where everybody sits where their political position is in the parliament, from left to right, and the Finns sit in the center. Uh, their their uh, immigration position, as I remember, is similar to the Canadians. They want a, a point system. I mean, they don't want to keep out all immigrants. And on economic policy, there's they're Keynesians. There's Probably a little to the, le to the left of Hillary Clinton, for instance. Uh, so again, it's very- but they're far right. But they're described they're, as because, far- Because they don't support the Cato Institute libertarian right open borders policy. So if you're in favor of open borders and, and unlimited immigration, then you're on the libertarian right if you want to restrict it and regulate it in the interest of unions or you know whatever, then you're also on the right. So I'm just, I'm having trouble seeing like where the left is like in this uh, in this picture. Well, uh, I mean, again, I, I'm not going to solve this problem no, for if, you, if, but you can look at Corbyn too in Britain and the trouble that right. he had with uh, Brexit. Now the uh, the. United Kingdom Independence Party, UKIP, was really the, the champion of leaving the EU. And uh, it's a, again, it's an interesting history that illustrates a, a, what, what, what's happened in Europe because they used to be what you'd call a petty bourgeois party, as did the National Front, the Austrian Freedom. 
It was, it was like Tory shopkeepers who treasured the idea of, um, of old England and, why, and were sentimental about it and thought that the e EU was a real atrocity and why, sh why should we give up our sovereignty? I want to have this other flag with the 13 stars or whatever it is. Uh, but in the last uh, uh, 10, 15 years, what, what happened to um, UKIP was that they became a, a working class party. And the reason for that is because um, when, when um, Great Britain joined the uh, European Union, the European Union has the, what's called the Schengen Accords, and those allow free movement among all the countries within the European Union. So they could have had a, a, a seven-year transition period, but Tony Blair liked the idea so much that in 2004 he said, we'll, we'll do it right away. So they had a tremendous influx from Eastern Europe of workers, uh, who, in the eyes of, um, of, again, the white working class, so you could say white, I mean, I don't know what the, whether that even term even means anything, but in, in Britain, in the, in the um, western, is it the eastern, eastern and southeastern parts, that had, were labor strongholds, uh, and UKIP, on the basis of its opposition to the Schengen Accords, and the EU began to pick up tremendous support within these areas. And, that's, and it was a combination of the old Tories, um, the, the petty, again, the petty bourgeois, if I can use that word here, uh, uh, plus the working class that carried the vote. Now, here we come to Corbyn, the leader, the great left-wing leader of the Labor Party, couldn't make up his mind. <laughs> Uh, what to do, and he remained. He he, in the end, had his sort of tepid support for remain rather than leave. But it was clear that he was paralyzed for the dilemma that you're describing. He couldn't he he couldn't decide what position that he should really. Well, since you've opened the door to Marx's class analysis yeah. by using petty bourgeoisie, uh, <laughs> couldn't you argue a lot of this is class? you know, tensions, it's not the classic, you know, the owners versus the workers, but there's this kind of uh, lower middle class, working class. As you, uh, then there's, you know, not only the rich, but also the college educated professionals. And, and isn't, isn't that driving a lot of this? Because when I get these things from the EU, why, you know, how populism must be crushed and this and that and the other, uh, it does, there's a real class element to it because l let's get back to your point about 30% of Americans have four-year college diplomas, right? So that means 70% of the population uh, does not have a four-year college degree. Sometimes they went for a few years and dropped out and so on. If you define legitimate politics as you agree with what college-educated minority believes about trade and immigration and you know, the environment or whatever. So you have to agree with the college-educated minority. And you're also forbidden to use non-college-educated style, okay? So you have to be calm and cool and technocratic in discussing things. You can't be like the old liberal politicians like Harry Truman and wave your arms and say they're trying to stab the farmer in the back, 
you know, no, then you're like Hitler or Mussolini, right? You're waving your arms, you know? You're like uh, Dean, the Dean scream, remember? Uh, so it just seems to me, isn't there an element to delegitimize whole areas of discussion where if you don't flunk them on uh, subject matter because they disagree with the elite, then they have this kind of uh, lower class style and then that disqualifies them. Right? And isn't that really kind of anti-democratic? Because even if you think they're wrong, right, they're the majority of the population. Right? Oh. The people who didn't go to college and don't know how you're supposed to act and how you know, politicians are supposed to act on, on television. Right? I, I used to do this when we uh, talked about the emerging democratic majority. Um, if you look at the, uh, at the, the popul voting population, and if you look at it as a pyramid, and the arrow going up is education and income, all right? Uh, 1960, as late as 1960, the two parties represented virtually inverted pyramids. The uh, Democrats, like this, income, education. Uh, the Republicans, like this, the higher you went in education, the higher you went in income, uh, the more likely you were to be a Republican. Again, what happens in this peculiar era, starting in the 19, late 60s, 1970s, uh, it's not just neoliberalism, the civil rights have a lot to do with it, is the parties get transformed and, the, uh, and what you get, and it's, it, it's really exaggerated in this election to, to the, really the point of craziness where the Democrats become the party of minorities, uh, many of whom occupy lower levels, and professionals in the upper middle class. Those are the two big constituencies of the Democrats. Uh, the Republicans at the top, they, do, they still do pretty well among small business, but then they have this slice that used to be Democrats of the white working class. And the two between, it's very hard to get any, um, well, to the extent that it was difficult for the parties to communicate, it's become almost insane during this election. Um, for instance, I, I'm really, um, I, I don't, I, I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton and all that, but I'm waiting to hear uh, one of these moderators ask her if she's going to stop eating Oreo cookies. Now, what do I mean by that? When one of the things that Trump went after was the Nabisco factory in my hometown of Chicago, uh, moved, moved to uh, Mexico, left 200 workers up in the lurch. Uh, and Trump said, I think it was in January or December, that he was going to stop eating Oreos. Now, that's silly. Maybe he the won't. Boycott. But, I'm, but, I'm, but again, <laughs> I'm waiting for somebody to ask, Hillary Clinton, well, are you going to stop eating Oreo cookies? And I bet you she ducks the question because the two parties, again, in this election, and that's this funny kind of undercurrent going on, are split on these economic issues, these issues about neoliberalism and market liberalism. And in some odd ways, Trump is to the left of the, uh, of the Democrats on these issues. So it's something, but again, you wouldn't know it. I mean, it's like uh, it just going. It, it just goes completely by the press. And part of it is because Trump, you know, Trump is a, 
whatever IST you want to use, nativist, racist, whatever, he's a bad guy. But still, uh, in terms of his constituency, I wouldn't dismiss them as a bunch of racist bigots idiots and stuff like that, but that's exactly the kind of uh, treatment that they've gotten from the press. I think that there is a real unwillingness to distinguish between, you know, what's terrible about Trump and his constituency and, and the people who find some hope in him uh, and who applaud. I mean, I went to the damn rallies when he would talk about this stuff like Nabisco and Ford or Carrier from Indianapolis moving out, out of the country. He'd get a lot of a lot of applause. People understand that. Union members understand that. So again, there is this kind of disconnect in our politics. Well, uh, maybe the next debate, the moderator will bring up the Oreo boycott. <laughs> uh, I, I suggested that to somebody, and he said, well, what, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what Oreos? <laughs> uh, the book is The Populist Explosion. It's a part of a wonderful new series, uh, Columbia Global Reports. Uh, which are modest-length, long essays, short books. Uh, this this is an excellent example of it. But I recommend all of these. Uh, you know, it, it's the most encouraging thing I think that has happened in book publishing uh, at, in, at a time that's otherwise discouraging about books. So, so uh, please take a look and uh, join me in thanking uh, our guest, John Jones. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.